Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and honor that it is to gather together as your people this morning and worship you in song, and now to worship you in spirit as we turn to your word. We remain in a spirit of worship, Father, for we are so thankful that we can hold this book in our hands and know that it is your very breath. And Father, as your inspired word, we ask, Father, that you would speak to us from it. Father, that these would not just be words on a page, but Father, that they would be your breath that, that go to a place in our soul that conforms us to the image of Christ. Grow us as a church. Grow us deep into your son, Jesus, so that we might fix our eyes on him and run our race of faith. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was uh, singing those songs, which were glorious, uh, my voice began. <clears throat> so if you are the praying kind, and I hope that you are, <laughs> pray that uh, the Lord would sustain my voice. But we trust his sovereignty. If my voice goes, then we're not supposed to hear what I'm going to say this morning. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. So in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the writer appeals to his readers to remain steadfast in the faith and to endure to the very end, no matter what it takes, no matter what happens, looking forward to the appearing of the Lord, he says. And then he hits pause, and it's almost like chapter Chapter 11 is a, is a parenthetical thought as he, as he gives us what scholars call the hall of faith in chapter 11. This list of Old Testament saints who, who exemplify the kind of enduring faith that he's calling on his readers to put forth as well. And then in chapter 12 now, he returns to the idea of persevering to the end. And he likens our perseverance to running a race. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race that is set before us is the the life of faith that God is calling each of us to run. The life of faith that he's calling us to live. And and while the race, the particulars of the race will look different for each one of us, there are some common elements. It begins when we put our faith in Jesus. And it ends, if if the Lord does not tarry, it ends when he brings us home. 
And we don't run this race alone. We, we run this race with Jesus and we run it with one another. And running, as we've learned in this series, involves each of us growing in our walks with Christ along the way and helping others grow and taking the gospel with us so that we can invite others to join us on this race. And he tells us that this is a race of endurance. It's not a sprint where we put forth a lot of energy and effort for a short period of time. It's, a, it's an endurance race, a long-distance race, where we put consistent effort in for a long period of time. And the picture here is of a, of a long-distance runner enduring the pain of, of sore feet and muscle cramps and extreme fatigue, but continuing to put one foot in front of the other, mile after mile after mile after mile. That is the Christian life. Waking up each morning, surrendering ourselves to the Lord. Lord, this is your day, this is your life, not mine. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So I want your will to happen today, not my own. Stepping out in faith, Lord, help me to honor you and glorify you by how I live today and entrusting ourselves to his sovereign guidance and care. And then waking up and doing it again the next day. Or as we've said in this series, gathering because of the gospel, going, growing in the gospel, and then going with the gospel Day after day after day, wash, rinse, and repeat. Growing in Christ, helping others grow in Christ, and having gospel conversations along the way, mile after mile after mile. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer gives us some tools that are going to help us on this race. And so I want us to look at them together this morning. The first is to remember and to consider that were surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and this cloud of witnesses to which he refers is that hall of faith in chapter 11. These saints of old, these Old Testament saints, Abel, Enoch, Abraham and Sarah, Noah, the patriarchs, as we, as we recounted their stories in Genesis several months ago, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then he also adds in there Moses and, and Rahab and David and Samuel and so on. These are the, the great cloud of witnesses. And I would presume that since it's a great cloud, and there's only a handful of them listed in chapter 11, that this cloud would include those saints who have gone on before us. Our parents, our grandparents, our friends, our loved ones, who knew and loved Jesus as Lord, that they're part of this cloud of witnesses as well. And the writer says that, that we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, and that because we're surrounded by them, that we ought to, as a result of that, as a consequence of that, run our race with endurance. And so there is to be a, a motivating factor to looking in the crowd and seeing the faces of these who have gone before 
in the faith. So how does a cloud of witnesses motivate us to run our race with endurance? I think in two ways. The first is that we could consider as we look at their faces that if God helped them across the finish line, that he too can help us across the finish line. That if his steadfast faithfulness and his steadfast love didn't let them down, neither will it let us down as well. You may have heard this passage exposited before, and and the picture that's often painted is that of a large stadium, a large amphitheater that's filled with a crowd and filled with fans, that that we're that, that they're our audience, that that they're cheering us on. And while that would certainly motivate us, I don't think that's the picture that the the writer of Hebrews is giving us here. He's giving us a different picture. How many of you have ever run cross-country or taken your kids to a cross-country meet or seen a cross-country or know what cross-country is? Okay, good. <laughs> awesome. So they start the race, and there's this big crowd. You're in this field. There's lots of activity. There's this big pack of runners, and there's all this excitement, right? But then over time, the, the pack begins to thin out, and there's distance between, between the runners, To where now you find yourself running alone. And then you leave that field where there was all this excitement and commotion. And you begin to trudge your way through the course. And you you enter into the woods. And in the woods there may be switchbacks. And there may be uh, turns and hills. And maybe there's creeks and obstacles to get over and to get around. But then finally, as you near the end of the race, you, you, you come to the, to the last turn, or you come to the end of the race, and you enter back into this field, and there's a crowd, right? That's where the crowd is. But some of the ones in the crowd are your teammates who have finished the race ahead of you and then have circled back around, and they're cheering you on as you finish your race. And you're tired, and you don't feel like you've got anything left in the tank. And you, and you look into the crowd, and, and you see some of your teammates, and you think, they made it. They, they're not dead, right? They, they made it across the finish line. I can too. And so you're spurred on by the witness of their having finished the race. That's what the writer of Hebrews is describing here. That we have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And these are the ones who have, who have run this race before us. They finished their race. And as we are running our race, we look into the crowd and we see their faces and we think, they did it. God helped them finish their race, though it was difficult. If they can do it, I can do it too. And consider some of the ones who are in the crowd that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Abraham, who was dishonest and lied about his wife being his sister to the Egyptians. Jacob, who, who deceived his father and stole his brother's birthright. David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. Rahab, who was a prostitute. And then the others. The others that we would add to this list who have gone on before. 
Those from Scripture, like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians. Those who, who, like John Mark, quit on the Apostle Paul. Jonathan Edwards, who was kicked out of his church, and so on and so forth. And we think the God who is faithful to help them across the finish line is likewise going to help me across the finish line as well. God didn't give up on them, and he won't give up on me. And we are greatly encouraged, and we are motivated to keep running. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how tired we get, we keep running, we keep running, we keep running. So that's the first way that this cloud of witnesses motivates us. But the second way that it motivates us is that when we look at them, as they are cheering for us and waiting for us to finish the race, we're reminded of the glorious prize that's at the finish line. You know, when you cross the finish line, when the cross-country race is over for everyone, then and only then do they have the big award ceremony, right? They start handing out awards, and there's this big crowd of people that gathers around, and they, they start handing out all kinds of awards. But the most important award... The one that is most prized by everyone is the, is the team award, the team that finished in first place. And when it's announced, if you're on that winning team, then there is a huge celebration for everyone who is on that team. That's also what the writer of Hebrews is describing here. Look in your Bibles at the end of chapter 11, verses 39 through 40 of chapter 11, he says, and all these, referring to all of these that he's listed in chapter 11, these Old Testament saints, he says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what was that something better for us that these Old Testament saints who had already finished the the race, they had finished their race, they did not receive. What was the something better? He tells us there in verse 40, that apart from us, New Testament believers, they, the Old Testament believers, should not be made perfect. In other words, the, the, the perfected culmination of God's plan of redemption for the Old Testament saints, which included the, the resurrection from the dead. It, it included Jesus' glorious return, the new heavens and the new earth, and, and the, the, the final restoration of all things being made new, that this would not happen for the Old Testament saints until all believers of all time finished their race as well and crossed that finish line. Just like at a cross-country meet. The celebration doesn't happen while there are still runners on the course. It's only when all of them have crossed the finish line and there's no more runners left out there. All who would finish have finished. Then the celebration and the awards ceremony begin after they've all crossed the finish line. So these saints, these saints who have gone before us, they've crossed their finish line and they're filled with joy at having finished the race. But they haven't started the celebration yet. And so they've circled back around and they're surrounding us and they're waiting until we all finish the race. And then the glorious Redeemer 
will return. And then the restoration of all things will begin. And the perfect, the perfection of the final state will commence. And so this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us motivates us to keep running the race. It motivates us by, you know, we look at them and we, we think, man, God was faithful to them. And the God that was faithful to them will be faithful to me. And he'll help me. He'll walk with me through this. And as we look at the, 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 the ones who have gone before us and, and what God walked them through and how they fell, how they tripped, how they stumbled, and yet God saw them to the end, that he'll do that with us as well. The second instruction that we're told about in this passage about running the race of faith is that we must lay aside the dead weight and the entangling sin. Lay aside the dead weight and the entangling sin. The word weight there um, in the New American Standard is the word obstacle. But in the translation of the New American Standard that I memorized years ago, it's the word encumbrance. And And I love that word. To lay aside every encumbrance, everything that weighs us down, everything that is holding us back from pressing on and walking with Christ. Martin Vincent, in his uh, very helpful and infamous word studies in the New Testament, says this, An encumbrance is whatever deadens your soul and holds you back when thou should be pressing forward to the upward call. It's, it's, what, it's what deadens our soul, whatever it might be, and keeps us, holds us back, keeps us from pressing forward. Matthew Henry writes, Inordinate care for the present life and fondness for it is a dead weight for the soul that pulls it down when it should ascend upwards and pulls it back when it should press forward inordinate care for the present life and fondness for it does it does, does, is he saying there that that we can't enjoy life of course not but it is to be watch watch out be watchful for an inordinate care of this life and the things of this world and such a fondness for it that it diverts our focus from what really matters i wonder is there any dead weight in your life It could be anything to which you give your time and energy that keeps you from growing in Christ. Anything that captures your heart and your affections more than Jesus does. Anything that deadens your soul to the things of God. It could be entertainment, television, social media, the internet, video games. It could be money and materialism, thinking that if I only had more, then I would be truly happy and content. It could be career, finding our identity in what we do. It could be hobbies. It could be recreation. Now, are hobbies bad? No, not necessarily. What about career? What about money? What about material possessions? They are actually good things from God. But we know that good things can become God things when our devotion and our attention to them causes us to divert devotion and attention away from Jesus and growing in our walk with him. At that point, they become dead weight. And at that point, we need to throw them off. 
It's kind of like when I was running, when I ran track in high school, we'd talk about the bear jumping on our back at some point. Like there, there, is, there is a point in the race where you just, like you can't put one foot forward. It's like a bear came up and jumped on your back. And it's not attacking you, it's just dead weight. And it makes it that much harder to put one foot in front of the other and continue the race. That's what dead weight is. The things that deaden our soul and cause us to shrink back from pressing on with Christ and keeps us from moving forward in our walk with him. So what is the dead weight in your life? What is that bear that's on your back and holding you back from pressing on in your walk with Jesus? Whatever it is, as he makes you aware of it, friend, throw it aside. Lay it aside and run the race. But the other thing that he tells us to lay aside is entangling sin. The second half of verse 1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So now he's addressing sin and not just dead weight. You see, dead weight is amoral. It's, It's neither necessarily good or bad. It's what we do with it. But sin is always immoral. By definition, it is crossing the line. It is transgressing a boundary. And the writer says that sin clings so closely to it. Again, I like the way the New American Standard puts this. The sin which so easily entangles us. The picture is that of getting so entangled into something that it causes us to fall. It causes us to stumble. It causes us to trip. And it otherwise impedes our progress in the race. Yesterday, as we were doing some work around the grounds, one of the things that some of us did is clear out some of the junipers in the front island. You probably noticed that. I know it looks fantastic right now with all of the dirt everywhere, but uh, we, were, we were clearing out and pulling up junipers. Now, can I just say to you as, as a lay horticulturalist that junipers are a result of the fall, okay? Um, this is just my opinion, but they're ugly, they're invasive, and the root system is like a, just, just from the pit of Hades, right? And so we're out there, a group of guys, and we're yanking on that stuff. We're pulling. Thank goodness Aaron Homan got us like a, a mini excavator. You see that little tank out there? Thank goodness for that, or we would still be out there pulling up junipers. But we're, we're, we're pulling on uh, th- these things and trying to rip them up. And, and as we walk through it, it's like the root system has hands and it reaches up and grabs our ankles and, and, and we trip and we stumble and and. I think nearly every one of us, including myself, fell as a result of it. Well, that's what sin does. It wants to trip us up. It it wants to impede our progress in the faith. And so it entangles us. It, It catches us in its web of deceit and makes us fall. I wonder, is there a sin that you're entangled in right now? Is there something in your life that has caught you, reached up and grabbed you in its web of deceit? And you're in its grip. You feel as though you're in its grip. It's going to cause you to fall. It's going to cause you to stumble. If so, then lay it aside. 
Kill that sin. Rip it up from the roots and throw it into the trash heap. Now, how do we do that? How do we lay aside entangling sin? First of all, we need to remember that if we are in Christ, then we are free from its grip. We we have been freed from it. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have trusted in his finished work on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that you deserve because of your rebellion against our King, if you've trusted in Jesus, then not only has he, has he saved you from your sin debt, but he has freed you from its grip. Paul says in Romans 8.1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of, sin, of, uh, of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you are in Christ Jesus through faith, then you have been set free. Don't act as if it holds you captive. It doesn't. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you are not in Christ, then it does. If you have not placed your faith in Christ alone, then the sin in your life does in fact hold you captive. And your only hope is to trust in Christ to save you. But if you know Jesus, then remember that you've already been set free. But secondly, confess and repent of that sin. Confession is agreeing with God that it is wrong, that it is a transgression of God's boundary. It is us making an apology to God. Lord, I'm sorry, you're right, this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this. And then repentance is turning away from it. Repentance is more, it's less about an attitude of the heart and it is more about action. It is literally turning away from the sin. It is hating that sin so much that you walk away from it. Confess and repent. Thirdly, trust in Jesus to help you fight that sin. Trust in Jesus Christ to help you fight that sin. The grace that saves, we've said it before, is the same grace that sanctifies And so in repentance, we turn away from sin, but then in faith, we turn to Jesus and we trust him to give us what we need to fight against that sin and mortify the flesh. And then lastly, delight in Jesus more than that sin. You see, we don't work our way out of temptation as much as we worship our way out of temptation. As we learn to treasure Jesus more and delight in Christ above everything else, you know what happens over time? Our taste buds for sin begin to sour. And we lose our taste for it. And we gain a new taste for Christ and Him crucified. That's how we lay aside entangling sin. So first we need to consider that cloud of witnesses and allow, as we see their faces, Allow that cloud of witnesses to to motivate us to keep running, keep trudging on. And then we lay aside the dead weight. We lay aside the entangling sin so that we can run with endurance. And then thirdly, to help us run this race of faith, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Verse 2 begins with looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. 
don't know if you can tell, I, I memorized these verses in the New American Standard years ago, and I still treasure the words of that translation, even though now I prefer the ESV. But the New American Stand, Standard says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The, the Greek word is a compound word. Combining the words for away from or off of and the word for to stare at. And so, so it's literally, it's, it's taking our eyes off of something and staring at Jesus, fixing our gaze on Christ. So there's a putting off and there's a putting on. I've never been a long-distance runner, nor was I really ever a sprinter. But when I did run track in high school, uh, my race was the quarter mile. Not because I was particularly good at it, but that was the race that they had me run. And the quarter mile is kind of like the juniper of track and field, right? It is, <laughs> it's, it's basically a sprint. It is like run as fast as you can one lap around the track. And you get to that last turn, and that's when the bear jumps on your back. And you are like, you're, you're dead. You're like, why did I start out so fast? I've got nothing left in the tank. But you come around that last turn, and what do you see? You see the finish line. And what you do, what the coaches teach us, you, and you, you look, you fix your gaze on that finish line. You don't look down at the track. You don't look around at, your, at the fellow runners. And you certainly don't look back. But you fix your eyes on the finish line. And, and, you, just, and you will yourself to keep running until you cross it. See, as we run our race of faith, we look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on our Redeemer. We take our eyes off of the things around us, the, the, the dead weight and the, and the entangling sin, and we fix our eyes on Christ. And in keeping our eyes on him, fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're told that we, we are looking to him who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The word translated founder there in the ESV is a word that means the chief leader or, uh, as the King James says, the, the author of our faith. So it means that he went first, that he blazed a trail for us in faith. So I think that Jesus is the, the founder of our faith in, in at least two ways. First, his life, his death, and his resurrection is the very foundation of our faith. It is the foundation of our faith. His sinless life, achieving for us a righteousness that we could never earn through our own doing. His substitutionary death, atoning for our sins. And his resurrection three days later, proving that God had accepted his son's death as full and sufficient payment for our sins. That is... That is the very core, the very foundation of our faith. It is the foundation of the gospel. If there is no righteous life of Jesus, or if he did not die on the cross, or if he did not rise three days later, then our faith has no foundation. And it is as if we are building a house on shifting sands. But those things are true. 
And so our faith has a very firm and solid foundation. But I also think that considering Jesus as the founder of our faith can also be understood here by seeing that that his faith, the faith of Jesus, is our example, is the example that we're to follow. We've talked in this series about what it means to be a disciple, a committed lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. As Paul exhorted the Corinthians, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And so we're to follow Jesus, which means that we follow his example. And the writer of Hebrews here gives us an example, the the example of Jesus' faith that he set for us. Look at the second half of verse 2. He says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised in the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there are three parts to Jesus' example of faith. And this is tremendously helpful and encouraging as an example for us to follow. First, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He could have called down a, a, a legion of angels to stop it in a moment, and yet he didn't. He, he went to the cross willingly. He endured it because that's what the Father required of him. That, that was his purpose and his plan for his son when he sent him to earth. And so he endured his cross. And Jesus tells us that if we want to be his disciples, then we too need to pick up our cross daily and follow him. But we need to understand that when Jesus said that, the cross was not an item of jewelry It was not an adornment that people would wear on them. It was a symbol of execution. It was a means of of killing people. And so when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me, he said, you need to be willing to die for me. On the one hand, figuratively, you need to be willing to die to self, that your life is not about you, it's about me, but also literally, That you need to be willing to put your life on the line for me. Something that the readers of the book, of the original audience of the book of Hebrews, that God would exactly call them to do. They would be called to give their life for Jesus. So are you willing to die to self? Are you willing to sacrifice self or... Are you more interested in serving self? Are you willing to die to self? Jesus endured his cross. Second, he despised its shame. Crucifixion was, if nothing else, an extraordinarily shameful means of public execution. It was done in public. It was done for the whole city to see. And it lasted for hours, and they would put a sign above those who were crucified listing their crimes so that passers-by could look up and see it. And they would walk by and mock them and deride them just as they did Jesus. And Jesus knew that this would happen, but he didn't give in to the shame. He, He didn't let the shame of the cross deter him from keeping his responsibility and fulfilling God's purpose for him. Let me ask you a question. 
What shame might you experience if you began to radically follow Jesus and obey Jesus in your life and boldly tell others about him? What shame might you experience? Friend, could it be that that shame is keeping us from full obedience to him in these areas? Let us follow Jesus' example, not only endure the cross, but to despise its shame, reject its shame, not let the shame keep us from the purpose that God has for us. And then the third part of Jesus' example of faith is that he looked to the joy ahead. First part of verse 2 says, for the joy set before him. What was the joy ahead for Jesus? Well, it was being reunited with his father. It was being seated at his right hand again in glory. And it was the redemption of all those whom God intended to save. Jesus knew that the cross was his father's plan for reconciling sinners like us back to himself. And and the vision of, of sinners reconciled back to God, worshiping the one true God again instead of themselves, gave Jesus enormous joy. And that joy ahead, that that future joy, kept him anchored to the task in front of him, to go into the cross. Church, there is an incredible buffet of joy awaiting those who know Jesus as Lord. An incredible buffet of joy. An inheritance awaits us that the Apostle Paul says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable in that it is eternal. It will never end. It is undefiled in that it will never be stained by sin. And it is unfading in that it will be as glorious in a million years as it is on day one. What awaits us in Christ is the eternal weight of glory that that Paul told the Corinthians about in his second letter to them, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, where he said this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, and what was the light momentary affliction for them? It was being fed to lions. It was being burned at the stake. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what awaits us in Christ. But even better than that, the greatest future joy that awaits us in Christ is that we will be in the presence of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. The one who left heaven for you. The one who endured mistreatment for you, was beaten for you, was whipped for you, went to the cross and shed his blood for you, and died for you. You will see him face to face. 
You will be in his, in his presence. What a tremendous and overwhelming joy. That future joy is literally what we're living for. Just as Jesus' future joy enabled him to endure the cross and despise its shame, so the future joy that awaits us helps us to run our race with endurance. So Jesus is the founder of our faith, but the writer also says that he is the perfecter of our faith. Lest we think that finishing this race of ours is up to us and our strength and our ability and our reservoir of endurance, no. We're told very good news here that Jesus perfects our faith to run this race. Remember what we've said before out of Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul says, And I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, which is Jesus, when he gave us the gift of faith and he led us across the line of faith, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He is going to do the work of perfection in us, perfecting our faith. Just as we've said all along in our series, as we've been talking about growing in our walks with Christ, that ultimately our spiritual growth is not ultimately up to us. It's up to Christ who causes the growth in us. In the very same way, our finishing this race is not ultimately up to us and our effort and our reservoir of endurance. It is up to Christ who perfects us. And so when you're facing a part of your race that is scary and confusing and just plain hard look to Jesus when you don't think you're strong enough when you don't think that your faith is adequate fix your eyes on Jesus he is the one who is perfecting your faith and trust in him to use these circumstances to to deepen your dependence on him and to solidify your faith in him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're to take our eyes off of the circumstances in this world that are scary and confusing and, and hard and fix them on Jesus. Robert Murray McShane writes, for every one look at your problems, your weaknesses, and your failures, take 10 looks at Jesus. That's good advice. Reminds us of what happened to Peter when he was in the boat with the disciples at night and Jesus comes walking on the water in the middle of the storm. And Peter sees him and Jesus beckons to him to leave the boat and walk on water to him. Remember that story, right? As long as Jesus was look as long as Peter was looking at Jesus, he was fine. But the moment he began to notice the waves and the storm and the wind around him, he began to sink. Friend, is there a scary circumstance that you find yourself in the midst of now? Is the Lord leading you through a hard time? Why not divert your eyes to Jesus? See his example of enduring his cross, despising its shame, and looking forward to future joy, and allow him who founded your faith to perfect it. It's like the chorus of that hymn that we sang earlier. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. As we close out this Gather, Grow, Go series, I want us to remember what we're all going after here. We desire to be a church where every single member is growing in their walk with Jesus. And not only are they growing, that, that we're helping others in the body of Christ grow in Christ as well. And that every single one of us is going with the gospel, looking for and taking advantage of opportunities to have, to have gospel conversations with people who desperately need it and are headed for a Christless eternity. This is the race that is set before us. May we run this race with endurance. Considering that great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, whether it's the Old Testament saints or even those who have gone on in the faith from among us in this church family, may we consider their life and the testimony and witness of their faith and may that motivate us And may we lay aside the dead weight and the entangling sin that has us in its grip. Is there something that you need to lay aside this morning? Whether it's just the dead weight in your life that's keeping you from pressing on with Christ and your walk with him, or whether it's an entangling sin that you've given yourself to and is liable to cause you to fall, lay it down unencumber yourself so that you can run this race with endurance. And church, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for the encouragement that we find in this passage of Scripture. Because, Lord, if we're honest, we know that we're, we're running a race And we're tired. It's not about whether we will get tired and weary and fatigued. It's not about whether our muscles will cramp. But Lord, it's about what we do in the midst of that. Do we look around and see the wind and the waves Do we look down and see how hard the track is or do we fix our eyes on the finish line? Do we fix our eyes on your son Jesus and be reunited with him? Father, would you you do that which we have talked about and prayed for during this series? Would you grow us in our walks with you? Would you cause us to spiritually mature, not so that we're smarter, not so that people would look at us and say, wow, what, what... what good Christians, but so that people would look at us and say, what, what an amazing God must be behind that. What amazing grace that God has shown to this people. Would you grow us? Would you, would you engage every single one of us in the, in the joy of seeing one another grow and helping one another grow? And God, may you use us May, may you use us as we awkwardly step out in faith and take the gospel with us and proclaim the good news of Jesus as best we can, trusting you with the results. Father, this is the race that you've set before us. Would you help us? Would you grow our faith in you until you bring us across the finish line?
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.